Happy Saturday. It's August 14th, 2021, and you are listening to Morning Meeting. I'm Ashley Baker, the style editor of Airmail. I'm Michael Haney, one of the deputy editors here at Airmail. Good morning. Good morning, Michael. I have one good piece of news for you, which is there's a rumor that Rachel and Ross are dating. That's right. Jennifer Aniston and David Schwimmer. I know this is pathetic, but it's been that kind of a week for the news. I mean, depressing after depressing after depressing outcome. I'm not sure what site you've been following, but that's good. (laughs) Dailymail.co.uk. A lot of hookups, a lot of comings and goings this week. I'm excited because in the sports world, probably the greatest footballer, soccer player, as we call it here in the U.S., going right now, Lionel Messi. Much heartbreak in Spain, where he left his longtime football team, FC Barcelona. She had, when he was barely 13, he went over to join that club. Now he has gone to Paris Saint-Germain, the French soccer powerhouse, and there is a lot of excitement in France about the Argentine star coming there, and so a lot of comings and goings, right? But let's get back to Rachel and Ross. Oh gosh, I'm so embarrassing. We're not really going to talk about that in the issue of airmail or on this episode of Morning Meeting. I was just trying to get you to smile. You got me to smile. Yay! We do have a lot to talk about though. We have a great issue. I think we're going to do something a little off format today, which is we're going to start with our guest, Alessandra Stanley, because in her view from here, she really touches on a lot of the major things, a lot of the top stories of the week. Theoretically, it's about Justice Breyer, who's turning 83. Happy birthday. And she uses this as a jumping off point to explore this notion of American selfishness and the fact that he won't retire, despite the fact that it's definitely for the good of the country. But she also talks about Andrew Cuomo and the latest news there, which has been dominating the front pages for the past week or so. Let's get Alessandra on here to make some sense of this all. Alessandra, first of all, welcome and thank you so much for joining us. Well, thank you for having me. Now, let's start with Andrew Cuomo. What on earth are we supposed to make of all of this? Well, luckily, we don't have to anymore because he finally resigned. But I think most of us have read much of the report and it's just a horrible thing to read. But there was one thing that stopped me. And so I'm going to share it with you, which is it's about sexual harassment. And then you get to the part where he, Cuomo asks a young female aide to memorize and then sing, Oh, Danny Boy. And I thought, well, that just didn't seem like, seemed different from everything else. That did not seem like sexual harassment. I mean, if you're in New York politics, you damn well better know the words and the music to Oh, Danny Boy. So that just, maybe Cuomo was bullying her or hazing, but it's Albany politics. You do have to know the basics. So I feel like they maybe threw in everything they could find without actually following the logic. On the other hand, it's a moot point. He's gone for now. How instrumental do you think Melissa DeRosa was, or do you have a view on Melissa DeRosa and how her resignation might have prompted him to seek the door as well? I think I know what prompted her to leave, which was just, it was just too much. And, you know, when, when Maureen Dowd in the New York Times tells you you're a quizzling, it's a tough road. But I don't think it mattered. Frankly, I think he would have had to resign anyway because there was just, there was no support for him anywhere except the people who voted for him who in this matter didn't have a say. No, I was just going to say, I think when people like, he should have gone through the impeachment process and I I'm sure your perspective is like mine, Alexander. Like the difference here between him and Trump is Trump had lockstep Republican support in the House. They were never going to convict him. Whereas here in the General Assembly, I'm sure he just counted the votes and like there was no way he was going to survive an impeachment trial. So what's more embarrassing to just sort of walk away or to be convicted and impeached and have that on your record, right? Right. Look how well that worked out for Nixon. I'm sorry. (laughs) 
<laughs> Ashley, you were saying? We have all of our favorites here. We've got Nixon, we've got Trump and Cuomo, quite an illustrious company for our once lauded governor to be joining. I was going to say, what did you make of Biden's response to the news? He said, well, he was a great governor. It was kind of a mixed bag, but I think in many ways it encapsulates how, how people felt about Cuomo, right? He grudgingly accepted that he had done a relatively solid job soldiering us through the pandemic. Right. I mean, if you look at Facebook and the endless quarrels about, well, okay, so he was a jerk, but he did get us through the pandemic. I and mean, that's going to be an endless debate. But what's Biden going to say now? You know, he's got to sort of be somewhat sympathetic without actually being helpful. All right. So let's move on to another topic of old guys who should probably hang it up. Justice Breyer, who is turning 83 years old. You take him to task a bit this week for his refusal to leave to the bench. Well, I mean, there's no comparison with Cuomo because Breyer has done nothing wrong except get old in the wrong place in the wrong time. So I'm sympathetic because it's very easy to make tell other people to sacrifice themselves. But if I keep my AC at 73 when it's 95 outside, that's bad. But it's my AC will not cause the polar ice caps to melt. Breyer is in, in a crucial position. I mean, if God forbid yet another conservative justice is appointed because Breyer refused to step down, I mean, it won't be long before Murmansk in Siberia turns into a tropical beach destination. Um, so much is at stake that I think he just has to do the right thing. And I think the only way you can get him to do the right thing is because I think he's getting old and cranky and contrarian is to keep saying, oh, he won't resign. And then maybe he will. So for listeners who might not be as au courant on the numbers, can you explain to us why we're in such a precarious position here with the Supreme Court? Well, the Senate is, if he were to drop dead, you already would have a hard time getting him past, you know, the Senate is what, 50-50 basically. But if a senator drops dead, I mean, tomorrow, then you suddenly have a Republican majority in the Senate and all bets are off. So it's not even that you have to wait till the November elections. Any minute now, something bad could happen that would turn into closer to Republican hands and make the Supreme Court even tougher. And, you know, there's three liberal justices left. I mean, how many do you want to, how many more risks do you want to have? I, what I love is you've got your line in, in your piece this week, the V from here, Alessandra, where you say Breyer, on the other hand, is like claiming he doesn't want politics to influence his decision, right? Which is you, you know, very astutely give the right context where you say like, that's a little like an aging hedge fund manager saying he dates women 30 years younger because age discrimination is against the law, right? I mean, it's just, it's convoluted thinking on his part, right? Yeah, it's very convenient. History is full of people who should have resigned and didn't. And the, the one that comes to mind is Colin Powell, because one person in the Bush administration with the stature and the authority and the knowledge to say, I'm quitting because the war in Iraq is unjustified. And things might have been different. I mean, support for that war, certainly international support, could have crumbled. And, you know, who knows how many lives would have been spared and how many political upheavals we could have avoided. And it's just awful. I hate to be the bearer of bad news, but we might have avoided being where we are right now, which is that on the eve of the 20th anniversary of 9-11, we were sitting at home hopelessly, helplessly watching as the Taliban marches straight towards Kabul. So resignation is a good thing. Can we get you to give us your prediction about when you think Kabul will fall? Well, I think it's going to be before September 11th or on September 11th. Just because I think the Taliban are that awful. Well, it's been a week full of depressing news. <laughs> Let's end with one good thing. What's one good thing? There's a charming piece from John Ficaro, who was the editor of Mad Magazine and who has written now two pieces for us. And it's hilarious. And I won't say anything more about it, except that it's charming and, and people should read it. And it'll take your mind off things like Cuomo, the Taliban. Justice Breyer, world global warming. Yeah, don't forget that cheery climate report in the California wildfires. <laughs> 
We've got it all, ladies and gentlemen. Okay, kids. Thank you so much, Alessandra. On that note, we will go drink a glass of rosé and try to forget everything that you just talked about. I think you better make it too, but good. Bye. Thank you. Thank you. Bye. Bye. Well, should we talk about something much more superfluous, Michael, which is the beginning of hunting season in the UK? (laughs) Oh, I would love to. Speaking of timely stories, this is a very fun story by our good friend Tom Chamberlain, who is the editor-in-chief of The Rake magazine, which if you have never read it, big fan of that. But Tom, he approached me about this story some while ago. He said, listen, have you ever done a story about hunting season? I said, no, what is it? He says, well, the glorious 12th is coming up, and August 12th is when shooting season begins in the UK. It begins, it runs from August 12th, when when grouse are first, the game birds are then, it goes September 1, our partridge, October 1 is pheasant. But as Tom says, it's not really about shooting. It's often about other things that go on at night, which is known as the corridor creeping. Other kinds of birds uh, and game are bagged in the evening when, when sort of people cross from door to door, from room to room. As one of his countesses that he interviews explains to him, basically everyone on these weekends is unbelievably horny because they've been shooting birds all day. There's something primeval about it. Only the Brits could get hor- be turned on by shooting birds all day. But yeah, I was going to say, yeah, you do you. Okay. <laughs> For those of us in the U.S., it's a great sort of look into a strange and interesting subculture of sh- these shooting weekends, which says there's two types. The first is the private type, where estate owners invite their friends to enjoy the weekend for free. And the second is where the landowners sort of rent out the weekend to very wealthy people. And these often start at $40,000 a day for the shooting privileges. Both of them, however, come with their own sort of level of sexual hijinks because, as I said, this corridor creeping is an after-hours activity that plays as much a part in the, the shooting as anything else. He talks about some of the interviews, various estate owners, about their what they've seen and what they've experienced, and even makes a mention of uh, an older gentleman who has a significant appendage and is something of a Lothario and goes by the nickname the Norfolk Chopper. So, Ashley, if you plan on going to shooting season, lock your door. Michael, I didn't think I was interested in hunting. I was wrong. Tom, you have enlightened me. This is now a new area of interest. Who knew that there was so much interesting action happening behind the scenes here? If you know Tom, by the way, he's the most elegant, beautifully dressed, sophisticated, civilized moon, probably in the entire UK. And then he he opens this piece. It just like kind of shocked me. This is his lead. The first time I was invited shooting, I was offered oral sex and cocaine by my fellow gun's wife in her guest room. He was 18 years old at the time. So if that doesn't get you reading the piece, I don't know what will. As he says, this, alas, was my introduction to what Prince Andrew referred to in his car crash BBC interview as just another, quote, straightforward shooting weekend. As he said, they're nothing but straightforward. It's just, as you know, he said, they sort of live on in the minds, especially of Americans, where everything is obedient Labradors and soggy tweed, people with names like Fathering Gay Phipps. But actually, yeah, I mean, we thought Burning Man was Dionysian, but these Brits and their tweed really put us to shame. Uh, yeah. <laughs> All right. Well, Michael, if I, this is probably a guarantee that you and I are not going to be invited on any of these weekends anytime soon. Although, hooray, travel restrictions have been lifted, I guess. I was planning to go to the UK. Now I'm a little feeling a little bit uncertain given the Delta variant to be continued. To be continued. But let's do more Brits behaving badly or bad behavior within the UK at least, right? Yeah. Let's talk about this light-fingered millennial 
Angela Golbenkian, the millennial grifter who has just been sentenced to more than three years in prison on a pair of fraud charges totaling more than $1.3 million. Now, this is one of those women who seemed like she was beautifully positioned to have a long and fruitful career in the art world. She was a member of one of Europe's best-known art-collecting families. She had an eye for fashion. She also liked commercial pieces. She had all the pieces were there for her to be one of these fabulous people we read about in the pages of Grazia, but it turns out that she had more than her fair share of avarice. Tell us what happened. Well, this is a case as the another well-known art dealer, critic, and commentator, Kenny Schachter, sort of frames it for us. And as he says, this case is symptomatic of our times and the increasing number of players in the art advisory arena. And he says, greed in this area is as natural as breathing and going to the bathroom. And wherever there's big money, there's going to be bad actors. And it's a bell curve of morality in this world. And the art world is no different. So what happened is this woman, Angela, she was a private jet hobbing Marriage spree, shopping, keeping up with the Gagosians level avarice. And she could only sustain it by one of two things, spectacular success or a spectacular swindle. She, of course, chose the swindle. And she had described herself on Instagram as an art collector and was name dropping the family's private art collection in her bio. And what she did was back in 2017, she got a Hong Kong-based art advisor to shell out more than a million pounds for a giant yellow pumpkin by the artist Yoyoi Kusama. But instead of paying the sellers or delivering the pumpkin to the buyers, she simply pocketed the cash and went on this vast shopping spree. The seller was waiting for the money. It never came and sort of started to then stiff various creditors, including the Percy Bass, a 100-year-old interior design business in Knightbridge. By 2019, the UK finally issues a warrant for her arrest. But by this time, she's safely ensconced in Germany where there's no extradition treaty. And it wasn't until June of last year that they finally tracked her down in Lisbon and arrested her and put an end to her hijinks. Yeah, I think the reason she got away with this in, in some part is because she was married to a guy named Duarte Gulbenkian, who was the great grandnephew of the British-American oil magnate Kalust Gulbenkian, who has an endowment that backs a $3.5 billion art-based foundation, as well as a museum in Lisbon. And it was in Lisbon where she was eventually tracked down. A lot of sketchy behavior, right? Indeed, Michael. This is another grifter story that would make for a fantastic film or perhaps even a Netflix series. So calling all producers and showrunners, you might want to take a look at this piece. You know, this piece makes me want to do, Ashley. Get an agent? Watch Call My Agent? Tell me. It makes me want to get away from it all, which is what you also inspired me to do this week by your fantastic piece about hiking through the natural wonders of Italy. Uh, isn't this a great, one of the great joys of my life is that I edit travel coverage here at Airmail. And as all of us are trying to figure out a way to get back out there and see the world, we were craving the return to cities, right? And this Delta variant that I keep mentioning has upended our plans in so many ways. And so I came across this marvelous travel company that was uh, recommended by a friend of ours, uh, Marie-Louise Gio, who's an editor at large for Airmail. But this is a, a company called Marima Walking Safaris, and it's run by this dapper, friendly, knowledgeable gentleman named Rudson Stewart. And he has these marvelous itineraries all over Italy that happen almost exclusively on foot. They're about five days a piece. 
you can go in the Dolomites, you can go in Sicily, you can go in the Aeolian Islands. And they're not like especially fancy in terms of the hotels and the restaurants, because what you're really after here is this natural wonder, right? So you're not going to be holing up at the Hotel de Russie in the center of Rome. And as a result, they're really well priced. Like a five-day trip in one of his groups is around $2,000, which is pretty extraordinary. It includes a lot of the meals and the lodging and all of that. And you walk from place to place every day. You don't have to, they carry your luggage for you in a van, luckily. And so this is not a backpacking trip per se, because there are nice beds and meals at the end of it. But the rest of the time, you're just sort of traipsing around Italy on foot. And there are different trips for all levels of fitness and desire to be active. But I think it's a really great alternative, especially in the fall, which is really the best walk time to walk over there because you still have the, the temperate weather without the oppressive heat of the Italian summer. So anyway, if you're looking for a, a little getaway in Italy, this is a, a great a great itinerary and a really good way to see the world while still feeling safe from the virus. Dun, dun, dun. Dun, dun, dun. All trails lead to Rome. Yeah, that was your brilliant headline, as always. I'm not suggesting credit for it. I'm just saying it's just, it's one of those things, I mean, if you've ever had the pleasure of, I mean, so many of these trails and things like, you know, they're they're ancient because they were either paths for shepherds or before roads were built. They were ways that people connected across hills and mountains and terrain from one village to the next. So I think, you know, they also have this ancient history through these wonderful landscapes that you can't, and vistas that you can't see any other way, but by moving through them on foot. So wonderful piece. Thank you. By the way, speaking of Italy and speaking of outdoors, I just want to take 30 seconds. And Ashley's in out west because Charlie, her son, how old is Charlie now, Ashley? He's eight. Okay. So Charlie went to camp in Colorado for, is it two weeks? So she sends me pictures the other day of when she picks up Charlie. It was a wilderness camp. And by the way, he looks like he had, like you said to me before, like, I don't know, I dropped off this boy and this little man came back. And by the way, did he also get his adult teeth while he was out in the woods? Because like all of a sudden, like he looks like he's grown about four inches and become this little man. You're right. I mean, it was so wonderful to see. He must've had the best time, right? It was so wild. I mean, after this weird coronavirus year for all of these kids. He was kind of a nervous wreck going into this, his first time being away from home. And he went to sleepaway camp for two weeks and it's like a wilderness adventure camp. So they go backpacking for three days at a time. And he's young to do that, right? Carrying his own equipment and stuff. And he came back like so self-possessed, just knowing exactly who he was, feeling so confident and so at ease in his own body. I was like, boy, if two weeks of nature can do this for me, sign me up. Alessandra and I are always joking that we want to go to this place in Malibu, which is basically exactly that. You hike every single day and eat like five almonds at the top and lose 10 pounds and pay $10,000 for the privilege. But like, I just want to go to my son's summer camp. It's kind of like the same experience. Maybe you can be a counselor there next year. Don't you think I'd be a great counselor? I would have really poor reception though, Michael. We would not be able to get this done. You could teach me how to make a lanyard. (laughs) We're very crafty here at Airmail. Crafty, crafty. Here's a good story, which I had forgotten all about the peg for this, Ashley, but I might say I feel stupid and contagious, but here we are now. Let me entertain us.
For those of you who know, that is Nevermind, the Nirvana album, which was released 30 years ago in September of 1991. And we've got a wonderful piece this week by Will Hodgkinson, kind of looking at how the album came into being and more than that, like how the band Nirvana came into being. And as he sort of reminds us, the success of Nevermind turned this underground punk band into a once in a lifetime phenomenon, brought them great fame and fortune, but the cost, as we know, was brutal. So it's a terrific look back at that moment in time, even about how the band came to write the songs that made it on to Nevermind. They worked them out of her long jams and rehearsals in a converted barn in Tacoma, Washington, where they played every day for the first three months of 91. And Smells Like Teen Spirit, as he says, which was Cobain's articulation of Gen X apathy, was formed over one of these long jams after Chris Novoselic and Dave Grohl suggested slowing parts of the song down, which gave it that kind of quiet, loud tension that fueled what, as we all know, is one of the great anthems of the 1990s. So good piece of cultural reporting for us. Yeah, it's marvelous. I love these kinds of stories. Michael, while we're on the subject of music, do you have anything at all you could recommend to us? Okay. One thing I want to recommend, and I know we've talked about it because you were, uh, as always, the cool kid way ahead of it. And I don't feel like a nerd bringing it up because I've just gotten into it because I know a lot of people are just discovering it. So if you haven't, I also want to say, and, and again, maybe this goes back to, you know, as we're all craving, wishing we could get away somewhere and maybe now you're reconsidering, should I go on vacation or not? If you want to feel good about not going on vacation, watch The White Lotus. Yeah, I like it. It was just renewed for a second season. So can we talk about it now since I finally accessed it? Sure. You love it as much as I do? I love it. To me, Mike White like can do very little wrong. Ever since I saw Chuck and Buck in the 90s, I was like, this guy is my guy. But I love the show. and The acting's brilliant. Like, It's such a strange, weird little thing. And it captures the surreal experience of v- being on vacation like, like few things can rival. If you don't know, it's available on HBO Max Plus or whatever they call it these days. But it also made me excited. Do you know about Nine Perfect Strangers, Ashley? I do not. Okay, Nine Perfect Strangers coming very soon on Hulu, based on the New York Times bestselling book by a woman named Leanne Moriarty. It stars Nicole Kidman, Melissa McCarthy, Luke Evans, and Bobby Cannavale, among Michael Shannon. Amazing cast. And it is set maybe at a place where you and Al Sander would kind of end up, a boutique health and wellness resort that promises healing and transformation as these nine stressed city dwellers try to get on a path to better living. But you soon find that Nicole Kimmin, who it seems is carving out this place for herself on in streaming land as playing a bit of a borderline psychopath. She is the sort of one who orchestrates their lives over the, this retreat. So check out the trailer on that. I'm looking forward to that because of my excitement over White Lotus. And what about you, my dear? Have you seen Stillwater? I haven't, but my mother has. Barbara, did she like it? She did like it a lot, yeah. She went to the theater to see it. Did you go to the theater to see it? I did. Well, I did because I was in Colorado and there was so much toxic smoke from the wildfire that it didn't really feel like a good idea to be outside, which is a curious place to be in. So I darted into the movie theater and saw Stillwater. Before I saw it, I had read a lot of the press around Amanda Knox's reaction to it. And she had done an interview with NPR. And obviously there was a Twitter thread that had somewhat gone viral. And so that 
piqued my curiosity even further. Although I love Tom McCarthy, who's the director of this film. And I also kind of think Matt Damon, like, really can't do a bad movie. I mean, is there anything that you can think of that Matt Damon has done that's been a disaster? Yes. Tell me. Yes, I can think of one off the top of my head. Tell me. We bought a zoo. Oh, didn't see it. Fine. Matt Damon's had one dud on his hands, but by and large, the guy knows how to pick a project, and this is a great one. I really love this movie. The film Stillwater picks up in Media Rays, where we have a young woman played by Abigail Breslin, who is in prison in Marseille, having been convicted of the murder of her roommate. We also have her father, the Matt Damon character, who comes over to visit her from Stillwater, Oklahoma, and he becomes entangled in the desire to prove her innocence. And it takes him in all sorts of fascinating directions directions. Um, and this the film's about a lot of different things. I think the triumph of the human spirit, if you will, but also the ability of people to really change meaningfully through life and through the circumstances that they encounter. And I think Matt Damon plays this salt of the earth Midwesterner who's uh, you know spent most of his life working on oil rigs and working on construction and, and having, frankly, the kind of life that we don't, that isn't often portrayed in films or on television. Anyway, Matt Damon plays this character with a great amount of subtlety and strength and new and there's just some really fine acting in it. In addition to Damon, you've got Camille Cotin, who plays Andrea Martel in Call My Agent, one of our favorite shows. But she plays a woman in Marseille that Damon encounters who ends up being really instrumental to the plot. And uh, she ends up serving sort of as of his translator and friend, soldiering him through this process of, of proving his daughter's innocence. So I thought it was a really wonderful film. I thought Amanda Knox made some really compelling arguments about why she was upset that the director didn't reach out to her in X, Y, and Z. But, you know, this is one of those stories that... It is fictionalized and it didn't feel to me like a direct ripoff of what happened to her. And she hadn't seen the movie, in fact, when she was posting her thread to Twitter. So to me, it didn't feel like identity theft, if you will. It it felt like a really original and thoughtful portrayal of an event that was loosely inspired by something that actually happened. Nice. I'm just glad you went back to the theater. I'm counting the days until I can go back to the theater. I think that my jumping back in will be when that James Bond film finally appears. The long, 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 long delayed. Yes. Daniel Craig for the win. Daniel Craig for the win and co-written by our friend from Fleabag, Phoebe Waller-Bridge. We love Phoebe. It's like between Phoebe and Emerald Fennell, those are our two British auteur girl crushes. Oh, and also Sharon Horgan, by the way, who we might have on an episode very soon. Looking forward, fingers crossed. All right, Michael, we have our assignments for the weekend. Lots to read, lots to watch, and lots to think about. So on that note, will you please read us out? Absolutely. Morning Meeting is produced by Airplay Productions and edited by Jesse Cannon. Our co-editors are Graydon Carter and Alexander Stanley. Our chief operating officer is Bill Keenan and our deputy editors are Nathan King and Chris Garrett. Our CMO is Emily Davis and the music supervisor is Randall Poster. The theme music is The Cute Monster by the Buddy Colette Quintet. A new edition of Airmail is published every Saturday, so please do subscribe and enjoy all of our stories on airmail.news, which we update every day. You can also find us on Twitter and Instagram at Airmail Weekly. We'll be back here next Saturday with another edition of Morning Meeting. In the meantime, be sure and subscribe at Apple Music or Spotify. Most of all, thanks for joining us.